Section 38 of The Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michael Migliaccio. The Catholic's Ready Answer. By Rev. M. P. Hill. Section 38. Evolution. An evolutionary boast. In the theory of natural selection, we have the key to the question of all questions, to the great enigma of the place of man in nature and of his natural development. The possibility of giving a mechanical explanation of organic nature was not seen until Darwin provided a solid foundation for the theory of a descent. Heckel. The facts of the case. Can the doctrine of evolution be accepted by a Christian? It depends on the kind and the amount of evolution he is asked to accept. No Christian can accept evolution of the extreme Darwinian or Heckelian type. But these are not the only forms of evolutionary theory. Certain moderate systems of evolution have been adopted by scientists who are sincere Christians, and some of whom are Catholics. It is plain that any theory of evolution that denies creation or the spirituality and immortality of the human soul is directly opposed to Christian truth. By evolution in general is meant a development or transformation, as when a seed evolves into a plant or a tadpole into a frog, but we are concerned here with the evolution of whole kinds or classes of beings into other kinds or classes. The reader needs hardly be informed that plants and animals are brought under an elaborate system of classification. The animal and vegetable kingdoms are each divided into sub-kingdoms, these again into classes, classes into orders, orders into families, families into genera, and genera into species. The species has been generally regarded as the unit. It may, however, have its subspecies, and the subspecies has been regarded by some naturalists as the unit. In the present state of biological science, the term species is a word of more or less vague import, and animals have been divided into species in a way that can hardly be regarded as scientific, the species being determined mainly by some peculiarity of structure as, for instance, in the teeth of quadrupeds or in the bills of birds, and in the assigning of the species being often dependent on the peculiar knowledge of individual investigators. The results, however, of such unscientific classification need present no obstacle to our readers getting at the gist of evolutionary systems. The evolution controversy is chiefly concerned with the origin of species. Did all the known species of animals and plants exist as such originally? Or have they been evolved from some primitive type or types? Did the dog, the wolf, and the jackal, which today are considered as distinct species of the genus Canis, always exist as distinct species? Or have they been all three evolved from one type of animal, which was neither dog, wolf, nor jackal? Evolutionists hold that the present species have been evolved from primitive types. Their extreme opponents deny that there is any evolution of species. Evolutionary Theories the beginnings of evolutionary theories may be seen in the writings of Buffon, Trevor Anus, the poet and savant Goethe, and Erasmus, grandfather of Charles Darwin. But Lamarck, born 1744, is generally regarded as the father of modern evolutionary science. He insisted much on the effect of environment in developing or destroying the habits and propensities and even the organs of animals. The variations thus produced were perpetuated by heredity. Geoffrey St. Hilaire, a contemporary of Lamarck's, held the mutability of species, and among other points of his system was the theory that environment could produce sudden changes in the specific characters of the embryo. 
The theories of Lamarck and St. Hilaire made small impression on the scientific world compared with that produced by the theory of Charles Robert Darwin. Darwinism in 1858, Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace, who had been each working independently on the same lines, agreed to present themselves to the scientific world as the joint authors of a new system of evolution. Each read a paper on the subject before the Linnaean Society on the same day. The following year, 1859, Darwin explained his theory at greater length in his Origin of the Species. The distinct feature of the system was the law of natural selection. The phrase was suggested by what is known as artificial selection, a process familiar to cultivators and breeders. When a gardener wishes to develop some valuable quality in his roses or his chrysanthemums, he selects for planting the best of the seeds from flowers possessing that quality. Following a like process for successive generations of the species, he will finally succeed in developing what is regarded as a new variety. Now according to Darwin, something analogous takes place in nature. By a sort of natural selection, certain peculiarities in animals and plants are propagated and developed, till after the lapse of ages, not only new varieties, but even new species are produced. But how is this law brought into operation? It is brought into operation by the struggle for existence. Animals and plants have a tendency to multiply much more rapidly than nature can to supply them with the means of subsistence. Hence the struggle for life, which some individuals survive, but which others do not. In the case of successful ones, what is their secret of their success? It must be, says Darwin, in the possession of some natural advantage, though it be slight keener vision, for instance, or greater strength of wing, which makes them superior to their fellows. It must consist radically in some variation from the normal type of structure. Now these beneficial variations will be propagated by generation, and thus it comes to pass that as nature is always selecting from the best, the favorable variations will become more and more pronounced, and the animal or plant will diverge more and more from the original type. Finally, after many generations, an entirely new species will have been produced. Darwin's conclusions covered the whole range of animal and vegetable life. Even man in his early origins was not excluded from the operation of natural selection. Man, he tells us, is but a higher type of animal which has arrived at its present superior condition by passing through a long series of transformations. He is in fact only a highly educated ape, whose superior intelligence is due to the ages of experience acquired in the school of adversity. Darwin obliterates the hard and fast line that has ever been drawn between human intelligence and animal instinct. With him it is a question of degree rather than of kind. What we call instinct only needs development to be converted into intelligence. No pure Darwinist can consistently hold that man possesses a spiritual soul essentially different from the soul of a brute. How seriously Darwin took home to himself his theory that ape intelligence and human intelligence are not essentially different is illustrated by the sudden check always put upon his thoughts about the Creator, by the reflection, what can an ape know about such high things? See, Darwin. Ideas borrowed from Lamarck and Buffon were eventually grafted onto the original theory by Darwin as the result of reflection and observation. Nevertheless, natural selection is the great distinctive feature of the system by which it must either stand or fall. And now, what is the verdict passed upon pure Darwinism by natural science and theology? Quote, Whatever services may have been rendered to the study of natural history by the principle of natural selection, it has been found to be notably defective as a key to the secret of the transformation of species. 
and many leading scientists now regard natural selection as only a subordinate factor in the process. The internal origin of useful variations tending to the realization of nature's designs is neglected in the theory, and the necessary accumulation of variations making for greater perfection of structure is not demonstrated. Darwinism can offer no explanation of certain elaborate formations which could have never passed through an elaborate struggle for existence. The sight of a peacock's tail always gave a painful shock to Darwin's evolutionary creed. Darwinism made too little account of environment in isolation, as well as of possible changes in the embryo. It knew nothing of sudden transformations such as the Mendelian system has made us familiar with. These and other defects have shattered the faith of more than one devout Darwinian and, indirectly, have given a stimulus to the inquiry in other directions. The history of Darwinism furnishes one of the most impressive instances of usurpation in the domain of thought followed by reaction and rebellion. Encountering at first intense opposition from older scientists, it soon won its way to favor among the young and enthusiastic. Its right to preeminence was loudly and intolerantly asserted. Finally, within a decade or two after the appearance of The Origin of Species, Darwinism was completely in the ascendant. Its influence was no longer confined to scientific circles, but was felt in the popular lecture hall and even in the elementary school. The phrase is set afloat by it, struggle for existence, survival of the fittest, the missing link, had now become household words. Such was Darwinism within the recollection of many of us, but today Darwinism is dethroned. Evolution in some form has possibly come to stay, but Darwinism and evolution are no longer regarded as identical by many of the leaders of scientific thought. The gradual decline of Darwinism is neatly and pointedly described by Edward von Hartmann. In the 60s of the past century, he tells us, the opposition of the older group of savants to the Darwinian hypothesis was supreme. In the 70s, the idea began to gain ground rapidly in all cultured countries. In the 80s, Darwin's influence was at its height and exercised an almost absolute control over technical research. In the 90s, for the first time, a few timid expressions of doubt and opposition were heard, and these gradually swelled into a great chorus of voices, aiming at the overthrow of the Darwinian theory. In the first decade of the 20th century, it has become apparent that the days of Darwinism are numbered. Among its latest opponents are such savants as Eimer, Gustav Wolf, De Vries, Hooke, von Wellstein, Fleshman, Rank, and many others. See Literary Digest, January 23, 1904. For a confirmation of this testimony, we need but to turn to the partial list of opponents of Darwinism furnished by Father Gerard in his valuable work, The Old Riddle and the Nearest Answer, page 199, a list in which occur such names as de Quatrefages, Blanchard, Wigand, Wolf, Haman, Pauli, Dreisch, Plate, Hertwig, Heer, Colliker, Eimer, von Hartmann, Schild, Du Bois Raymond, Virchow, Nigelli, Schaffenhausen, Fechner, Jacob, Diebolder, Huber, Joseph Rank, and von Bauer. As to the Darwinian derivation of man from the ape, not a few of Darwin's followers have parted company with him on that point. His colleague in the first propounding of the theory of natural selection, Alfred Russell Wallace, was a steady adherent on scientific grounds, of the doctrine of the spirituality and the divine origin of the human soul. The overthrow of natural selection is not the overthrow of evolution, but still even the fate of natural selection is matter for rejoicing to all Christian believers. To those whose faith is easily disturbed by supposed scientific truths, 
it is well that an object lesson has been furnished showing how easily a scientific guess may pass current for a scientific truth, and how easily a timorous soul may be frightened with false fire. Heckel's System Darwin's theory, bold as it is, is in some respects tame compared with Heckel's. And yet, Heckel's is only a revamping of ancient systems of philosophy which have had their day. It contains, however, one element of originality. According to Heckel, there is one universal, all-controlling law of nature, the law of substance. How did he discover it? There was no need of discovery for a man of Heckel's well-known ready invention. He simply took two laws accepted by the scientific world, the indestructibility of matter and the conservation of energy, and framed them into one. Why he should have called it a law, or why a law of substance, he would have found it difficult to explain. He sums up the universe and its history in two words, matter and energy, though energy is only a quality of matter. As the system reduces all things to one, it is a species of monism, from the Greek monos, single. By the law of substance, we are told, all things have been evolved from the minute particles of matter that once constituted the then formless universe. The process has been a purely mechanical one. Nebulous matter has been shaped into revolving orbs. The mineral kingdom has sprung into existence. And then in succession, the vegetable and animal, closing with man, who with all his achievements, with his civilization and religion, is reducible, like all things else, to the one formula, matter and energy. God, providence, creation, spiritual and immortal soul, free will, moral responsibility, all this is swept aside, and in its place is erected a law of blind necessity whose operation is inevitable and irreversible. The boldness of this doctrine is only surpassed by the reckless indifference of its defender, if defender he can be called, to the necessity of demonstrating what is so confidently asserted. A certain species of quiet assumption is the policy of Heckel and his school, and this is the secret of their success with the unthinking multitude. Problems, before which the world's greatest minds have halted from a sense of their inherent difficulty, are serenely ignored by these mystics of pseudoscience, who substitute a sort of scientific faith or scientific intuition for bona fide research and general scientific demonstration. Such is the theory of evolution proclaimed as scientific law by Professor Heckel in his Riddle of the Universe a work in which the author steps down from the professional chair and appeals to the crowd, and that with no little success, notwithstanding the fact that his methods, his assertions, and his professional conduct generally have been indignantly repudiated by a large number of leading German scientists. If our readers would like to see a sample portrait of the class of scientists who have thus degraded themselves before the crowd, we would ask them to turn to the article entitled Heckel. After reading it, they will agree with us that the following verdict passed upon his pretensions by Professor Paulson is comparatively mild. Quote, what I propose showing is not more nor yet less than this, that as a philosopher Heckel is not to be taken seriously. End quote. It would take a treatise on rational philosophy and another one on natural science to refute one half of the assumptions and false assertions that abound in Heckel's books. Many of them have been repudiated by leading scientists in their criticism of pure Darwinism. We have taken special pains elsewhere, see Spontaneous Generation, to show that one essential link in the continuous chain of causes and effects required by Hecklin evolution is wanting. The transition from the no-life period on Earth to the period of life cannot be accounted for except by either creation or by spontaneous generation. By Heckel and his school, spontaneous generation is simply assumed as a fact, 
although there is no warrant for the assumption either in the ordinary experience or in science. In recent years, evolutionists have followed very divergent paths. Some have not yet renounced their loyalty to the old ensign of natural selection. Some have been harking back to Lamarckism. Others have busied themselves with the study of the embryo, with a view at getting at the conditions for the transformation of species. Still another group are proving experimentally that new species may be produced suddenly, and hold that in the past nature has so produced them, not however capriciously, but by virtue of an internal principle and by fixed law. Evolution and Christianity As evolution and Christianity meet on common ground, to wit, the origin of the material world and of man, it is desirable to know whether and to what extent they can dwell in their peace. In the first place, what should be the attitude of a Christian man of science toward the general idea of evolution of the species? Impartial investigators have found a mass of facts which they regard as evidence of at least a limited evolution of species. There is nothing to prevent a Christian from entering this field and exploring it to the utmost. The certain and solid results of scientific research will never be found conflicting with Christian truth, for truth can never be at variance with truth. Necessarily, Catholic theologians have been uncompromising in their hostility to pure Darwinism, and at first they looked with disfavor, to say the least, on any and every theory of evolution of species. But now that scientific thought has been showing a tendency to right itself after a period of storm and stress, there is some prospect of reconciliation between theology and evolution. We have a typical example of the moderate Christian evolutionist in the distinguished German entomologist Father Waschmann S.J., who inclines to the theory that the present countless species of plants and animals have been derived from a comparatively small number of species, natural species, he calls them, which were the direct product of creation. He thus leaves the Christian doctrine of creation untouched. To the believer in creation, he says, it is a matter of indifference whether the hare and the rabbit or the horse and the ass are related in origin. If the old idea of fixedness of the species should be supplanted by the new idea of derivation by descent, the power and wisdom of the Creator would not be the less glorified, rather they would be the more glorified, by reason of the Creator's having implanted in organic natures potentialities which enable them to unfold ever new forms of organic life without the need of any further special intervention of creative power. Whenever there is question of accepting or rejecting any evolutionary theory, we must of course draw the line at every point where the theory clashes with the unmistakable Catholic teaching. An evolution that entirely excludes creation is both unchristian and unscientific. A theory that denies that the world was made in six days is to be rejected, and yet we are not forbidden to interpret the six days of the Bible as six very long periods of time. The original text of Genesis does not exclude that interpretation, and in case science succeeds in demonstrating that long periods of time must have elapsed between the formation of the earth and the creation of man, there will be nothing in the Bible to contradict that demonstration. Even the postulate of millions of years, which has so often been put forward, could be safely granted. The opposite extreme in the interpretation of six days is illustrated by St. Augustine's opinion, or at least by the view that he inclines to, that God created all things at one time and the same moment, and that the six days only indicate six grades of perfection, or six orders of created things. As regards the origin of man, we must, in the first place, distinguish between body and soul. Catholic teaching and sound philosophy require us to hold that man's soul is spiritual, 
and is therefore essentially different from the soul of a brute. Hence, no evolution of the soul of an animal can produce intelligence in the right sense of the word. Hence, no Catholic can admit the evolution of the human soul. As to the body of man, Catholics are bound to accept the inspired statement of the book of Genesis 2.7, The Lord God formed man of the slime of the earth. As to the manner in which he formed his body, perhaps some latitude of opinion is permitted. St. Augustine, whilst regarding the question as wrapped in mystery, is very loath to consider the Almighty as fashioning the body of man in the way in which an artist models his figures in clay. In one passage, he speaks of something like a preparation and predetermination of the human body before the formation of the complete man in what he calls the primordial forms or elements, in rationibus primordialibus. Certain Catholic authorities do not see any repugnance, so far as Christian doctrine is concerned, in the idea that the body of the first man should have passed through a number of stages of development, viz. inorganic vegetable, and finally animal, life. On this view, we shall not presume to pass judgment. It seems to be as far removed as it safely can be from the more natural and obvious interpretation of the text, quote, The Lord God formed man of the slime of the earth, and breathed into his face the breath of life, end quote, but it may, nonetheless, be defensible. It, of course, excludes the rational soul from the range of evolution, for that every Christian theory of evolution must do. To return, in conclusion, to Professor Heckel's views, it is not, after all, so evident that in the theory of natural selection we have the key to the question of all questions, to the great enigma of the place of man in nature and of his natural development. End of section 38.